Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. So David, it's been such a long time since I've had salami, and you're telling me you had salami for breakfast on a bagel? On a garlic bagel. Hebrew national salami, the only salami that counts. Well, you know what? Here in Arizona, it's hard to get decent kosher food. (laughs) What would you expect to be able to get? You live in a desert. Well, they have this family from New York, the Borensteins. They opened a place called Chompies. It's a $30 million a year business. People crave even pseudo-kosher food. You mean it's just a local chain? Is it a chain or what is it? How many stores? They have four stores and a large bakery that services supermarkets and everything. Seven and a half million a store, huh? Well, you know, it's not just a store. It's the bakery. Let's go open a bakery up. You know what? Better than... <laughs> a you radio eat. show. People gotta eat. You know that's the deal. Yeah, I know we're in the wrong business, aren't we? Well, I I, I want to open up an Argentinian ice cream place. That's just me, though. I mean, oh man, don't get me started. Yet again, we're doing another non-paracast opening. I'll tell you what. Let me give everybody an address. Let's switch it back here. Forum.theparacast.com. We're always talking about our forums. And the problem is here, I think a lot of people listen to the show, but Mm -hmm. they never check out the forums. And there's a lot of hot stuff going on there. Like, for example, there's a thread started by our friend Skyler. DBH, did you see that? I have an admission to make. I saw that heading and I thought, oh, what has he done? He hasn't tried to put my name on something, has he? And thank goodness. It's not has nothing to do with me because I thought Skyler is getting back at me for mentioning him on the show. It's funny because if you read his posts on the forums, you think this is so not a humble guy. But in reality, he's actually very sweet. And I don't want to call him humble, but he sort of is. He, he downplays a lot of things about himself. Um, First of all, I want you to go, ladies and gentlemen, to a thread on our forums, forum.theparacast.com. It's located under conspiracy theories. It's called Richard Dolan's Tinfoil Hat, oh, a general one. systems theory of conspiracy. Now, once you do that, you'll learn why Richard Dolan will never come on the Paracast again, even if we invite him once he reads this don't document. Don't say that. That's not true. You but know what? I don't think he'd that, come on know? after reading this. I think that's going to be it. Well, I would hope that he would come on, actually. Don't say that, because... Skyler brings up some really relevant points. And you know what it comes down to? And a little story to tell, because we do have some preamble time. Uh, this last weekend, against my better judgment, I shouldn't say against my better judgment, because I thought it would be interesting. I went to a new UFO-related meeting in the Westchester, New York area that had formed out of someone's frustration with the existing meeting that had been going, that has been going on for a number of years. I've talked about it on the show before. The um, angelic healer person who has the little prayer session before the main meeting opens. Anyway, I had gotten news that there was going to be a new group starting. Know the guy who started. Who started? I'm not going to mention his name on the air, and you'll see why in just a second. But I went to this thing on Saturday, and Gene, it took everything in me not to leap across the table and pound this guy's face into the table. The guy who's running this type A personality not a friendly person. And the thing that he did that really sent me over the edge was that he was very disrespectful to an elderly woman that was there. And I just saw red. I wanted to hurt him. The, the point of, the, of me bringing this up is that 
here was a group that was getting together basically to offer an antidote to the sort of new agey group that has existed for a long time. But what it basically devolved into was this guy, you know, trying to talk about the great work that Stephen Greer had done. And I, I just I just lost it. So when it comes right down to it, okay. Another type A personality, by the way. Well, yeah, well, boy, <laughs> major way. And then some. When it comes right down to it. He's it, type A, B, C, Z, and D. Anyway, as I was going to say, um, it's it's kind of impossible, I think, in many ways, to have reasonable discussions about an unreasonable topic. I really think so. And I know that, you know, there are other people out there who are trying besides us, though I don't know who those people are. Uh, but when it comes right down to it, it you're talking about, uh, well, certainly in terms of the UFO topic, but really any of the paranormal stuff, um, we are heavily indoctrinated into essentially marginalizing anything that's not got the corporate branding. It's the way it really feels, whether that corporate branding is organized religion or the quote unquote media. Uh, we basically, as a society, it appears that we're not capable of quote unquote thinking outside of the box a very popular term that's been completely abused at this point but the reality is that i i think we're, we're sort of stuck well you know I what happened now of course yeah. if we're going to be political the u.s supreme court has basically opened the coffers that were pretty open already for corporate control oh, of government now there was a guy named mussolini who did that you know years ago you know, he merged the corporation and the state, and they called it fascism. Yeah. Oh, boy. We've been on that slide for a long time. And, and, and this is not a partisan issue. This is so not a partisan issue. And I really you sort of wish at this point that people would understand that when partisan politics gets dragged into the discussion, that 95% of the time, that's meant to distract and divert. That's, that's what that's about. It's so obvious. And now I think we're at a point where it's become extremely obvious to people with what with the TARP, quote unquote, bailout, um, with the continued outsourcing of all of our manufacturing base. And now with this latest Supreme Court move, where essentially the conservative judges on the Supreme Court made it clear where their allegiances lie. Now, it's interesting here, before we even go into that, remember that the conservatives in Congress are saying we can't have activist judges who make law. So what do they do? Well, we have five judges who just made law. That's right. And who made a very, very ugly law. And apparently Roberts wanted to take it further than it had been taken. He wanted to. I mean, if you start to read up about this topic, what you realize is basically this is... The whole struggle, I would argue throughout the history of humanity, the whole struggle on this planet has been one of class and power. And money is the mechanism that provides that, uh, that power. But basically, that's, that's essentially the human story. And it, it isn't any different now. What's different now is that we have communications technologies that allow those who want to understand more to basically go out and find information not necessarily find knowledge, but certainly find information. And if they're, if they're motivated enough and if they're intelligent enough to draw some reasonable conclusions from that information and the conclusions that a reasonable person draws, regardless of their partisan politics, uh, is that in essence, certainly in this country, essentially we've become a corporate feudal state. 
and and this Supreme Court move was the last piece of the puzzle to to make it clear to everyone that that is indeed the case, that the representative government that we think we have, a representative democracy, is no such thing. It's all about the money. Really, honestly, that's the bottom line. And this has got nothing to do with partisan politics. And uh, we've we've been taken a task. There are people who write about you and I, Gene, and say that we, we show our Democrat uh, uh, colors, which I've always taken a bit of an offense to in that uh, I see myself clearly as uh, an outsider of this whole thing. I, I do not I self-identify as a Democrat. I don't even self-identify necessarily as liberal. Uh, I think of myself as a global citizen and one who, who has enough of an understanding of this world to know that uh, most of what people believe about the nature of what we call our country is not what it appears to be, sadly. That takes us to another subject, and maybe we'll have to do that entire show about that. The real political show, not the conspiracy show, but the real political show. No one wants, no people who tune into the Paracast don't want to hear that show. They don't. They, they want to hear about the paranormal. They don't want to hear about politics. I think in many ways, people turn to things like paranormal topics to escape the political noise. So to go that route, I really don't think it makes sense. And you and I have this discussion all the time on the show and then offline as well. Uh, it would certainly, look, if we were on every night of the week, I would be willing to certainly, you know, absolutely reconsider that because you'd have to fill, let's say, five nights a week with programming material. It would, uh, it would probably not be productive to ignore the political side of the, uh, of the equation. But given that we only have these two hours every week, I think it behooves us to devote it to the paranormal and to sort of forget the political stuff, also in recognition that we have a global audience for this show. And for uh, a large segment of our audience that does not live in the United States, they're not as interested to hear our political ramblings. They don't really care. I got an interesting letter to segue back to the subject. He says, quote, my friend Dennis Ballfazer. Now, immediately when someone says he's a friend of Dennis Ballfazer, who's a friend of ours on the show, we want to say this guy is obviously somebody we're interested in. I suggested I write to you. I am requesting advice and assistance. I'm promoting my new book called Sworn to Secrecy, the 1947 Roswell Incident. I am a physicist and lived in Roswell, New Mexico for 18 months while researching the 1947 incident from 1998 to 1999. While there, I spoke regularly with Walt Hout and Glenn Dennis and others directly involved in the 1947 event. I produced a documentary for television titled Conspiracy X, Government Secrets Revealed, and it was aired on DirecTV, and I sold the East Asian marketing rights, etc., etc. He also spent time, by the way, investigating the Gulf Breeze UFO flaps. Hmm. Hmm. So he's got a lot of interesting information. That should be good. Yeah. And we'll hear from Shet. On the other side of Le Paricast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain 
domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap, where we host many great contests, or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You hear it on TV. You hear it on radio. Cash for gold. Yes, it's an enticing phrase during these challenging days, but the real question is how much cash are you going to get for your gold and silver? Are you going to get the best value? Well, you can get the best price from a company whose owners have decades of experience in the business. Welcome to Goldbug. The folks at Goldbug warn you that many of those high-budget gold buyers are paying far less than you deserve for your gold and silver. Goldbug will give you top dollar each and every time. To learn more, call 1-866-596-6134. That number again, 1-866-596-6134 for Goldbug. Or visit us online at goldbug.com. That's Goldbug with two Gs, goldbug.com. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? Chet Sapolio is a physicist, and as we said, he's investigated both the Roswell, New Mexico case and the Gulf Breeze flaps. Now, I'm going to ask you a very silly question because I specialize in that jet, and that is, why does a physicist get involved in the UFO craziness? Well, Gene, I'll tell you what. My interest in ufology really stems from one basic question, and that is, assuming that we are being visited by extraterrestrials, and I certainly believe that we are, um, how do they get here? Given the vast distances uh, in space, how, given our laws of physics, do we uh, explain, in fact, how these folks are getting from from there to here? And um, that intrigues me because it requires that we get into some exotic types of propulsion systems. And that's really my take on my biggest interest in UFOs. Roswell has been, shall we say, a case that's been very difficult to learn much about because of the fact that it happened so many years ago. Most of the information didn't come to bear until, what, 20 years, 20-some-on years after the incident when maybe some memories might have faded. Now, of course, it's difficult because of the fact that most of the original witnesses are no longer with us. So having gotten interested in the subject, why did you go to Roswell? For professional reasons or because of this case? Primarily because of this case, um, I had an opportunity to office in uh, the UFO International UFO Museum in Roswell, and I actually served for a very short period of time on their board of directors. And my office was directly across from that of Glenn Dennis's. Glenn, uh, Glenn was the mortician who was at the Bollard Funeral Home during the 1947 incident. 
And while there, I was able to talk almost daily with Glenn. And I also had the privilege of talking regularly with Walter Hout, who had been ordered by Colonel Blanchard to deliver the famous press release regarding the finding of the crash remnants of a flying saucer on the uh, Foster Ranch in 1947. So my interest was primarily to go out and, and interview as many people as possible. You know, um, Gene, it's been a race with The Undertaker for, for many, many years regarding the Roswell incident because, as you said earlier on, many of those folks are no longer with us. So back in 98, uh, I decided to take a sabbatical and uh, go to Roswell, spend some time, and uh, see what I could learn about the incident. Okay, now having gone to Roswell, is there something you learned that we didn't know before? I'm not sure that I learned anything new in Roswell that hasn't already been written in the literature, but I was able to confirm an awful lot of what I had read. I had an opportunity to interview over 200 people that were either directly or indirectly involved with the incident, either, either those that were stationed at the 509th or their families who had stories to tell. So. Um, it was more a confirming mission as opposed to discovering new evidence. So, Chet, given that you've looked so deeply into the Roswell episode, uh, let's start with the idea that the craft might have been brought down by radar. And we've heard that said many times before that you know, in trying to figure out why would a craft crash this idea that radar might have interfered somehow with the craft's propulsion system on a physical level, does that make any sense to you? Uh, it certainly can it certainly can make sense. Um, we know for a fact that there were radar installations uh, north of the Foster Ranch, north of Corona, uh, closer to Farmington, New Mexico. However, my personal take on the on the subject is that it probably was due to a natural phenomenon, namely a, a weather storm. I believe that uh, the craft was probably struck by lightning, and that's what brought it down. I've heard the stories about the radar, but given the energy levels that they were using at the time, uh, you know, radar was a relatively new thing developed right. by the British, developed by the British um, during the Second World War. I'm not sure that the energy levels were there uh, that would, could cause that kind of damage. The other thing that's always intrigued me about that whole idea of the crashed vehicle is that if they're so technically advanced that they can travel these vast distances, either through space or maybe even time or even hyperdimensionally, wouldn't they almost be crash-proof, so to speak? So it seems to me that it had to be something that was, you know, something rather extraordinary, something that involved a tremendous amount of energy. And I think the uh, lightning strike, the amount of energy contained in the lightning bolt could, could possibly do that. So that said, if we assume that something came down in Roswell, a lot of people wonder about the idea of a large number of people who potentially were witness to some aspect of this, and certainly the name Glenn Dennis comes up over and over, and we, we're going to want to talk about that, given that you spoke with him at length. People wonder why something like this got buried for as many years as it did. I mean, essentially, when you start to unravel this case, what you realize is that 
there's this possibility that if, ha- if it hadn't been for Stanton Friedman being at the right time at the right place, this episode might never have come to light. So well, that's, that's true. That's a good point. Uh, and Stanton certainly was the right place at the right time and, and awfully uh, persistent and diligent at what he does and, and was able to, to take the, the lead that he got and uh, run with it. Glenn Dennis's involvement and the time that I spent with him again confirmed that that something really did occur and you know Glenn's attitude and almost everybody associated all the all the researchers that I've talked with have to really wonder why or what the motivation is the government's motivation for uh, concealing the facts and I think what we have to keep in mind and really the the background uh, that I use for my book, Sworn to Secrecy, is that we were in a somewhat difficult period at the time. Um, social political difficulties. Uh, we had just gotten through with the Second World War. The world was a, was a, a nervous place, so to speak. It was the beginning of the Cold War. It was spy versus spy. Uh, we we had the atomic bomb. The Russians were working diligently to develop the bomb. The the government wasn't sure what was going on when they recovered this craft. It certainly was a craft of unknown origin. It was a new technology. Uh, there were many suspicions. They thought perhaps it was a, a Russian vehicle or a Russian technology. You know, people were just very nervous at the time, and it was uh, above top secret when 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 this occurred. They were concerned about guarding all sorts of military and scientific clues and and information, uh, and I think they were also concerned about the possibility of of creating mass hysteria. The United States was trying to recover from the war. Uh, people were starting to settle down. You know, we went from the Great Depression into the Second World War, mm-hmm. and it was a tough time, and now the war was over, and uh, the government, I believe, probably had good reason at the time to cover up what they had discovered. I'm not sure that that applies in today's world, however. I think it's time for full disclosure. Well, that you've jumped right to a hot button topic. So let's uh, let's go with the flow here. Disclosure of what? And and that's really the key question. Uh, and this is a recurring question in any conversation about this. This idea that the government has some sort of tangible understanding of what it's sitting on, and that it would somehow find deem it necessary or even desirable to disclose this. Um, when, when you say disclosure, are you assigning any meaning to that disclosure? In other words, do you think the government is going to come out or some faction of the government is going to come out and say we have this technology and we've figured it out, we haven't figured it out? I mean, what, what do you think they would disclose, actually, Chet? I think that's the million-dollar question. The question being, is the government close to some sort of disclosure? I think the first problem is that, in answering that question, is that uh, I'm not sure that the government knows exactly what they have, and I think they've got themselves in a rather embarrassing situation. I'm not sure that they know exactly where this technology has come from. I'm not sure that they understand the technology in full or even in part, and I think they're up against 
um, image. I think that they're concerned about the citizenry of, uh, of the United States saying, hey, there's a craft that are coming and going in our airspace at will. And, you know, we rely on our Air Force and, and other branches of the military to keep us safe. And um, the government would have to say, gee, in fact, you know, this is a superior technology. Uh, we really don't have any control over this. And when you connect the dots, the citizens of the United States would feel very insecure and uh, very become very paranoid about the situation. So... I have mixed feelings. On one hand, I think that the government has good motivation for not disclosing the truth. And then on the other hand, I think that maybe the greatest uh, the fact, greatest facts you know that, that mankind has ever uh, discovered are, you know, in fact, held close to the vest by a select few that know of their existence, but are not sharing it with, you know, the general public and, and, and the taxpayers. Picture this. You're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual, a PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website. But it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free 30-day trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Chet Sapoligo is here. He's a physicist, UFO investigator. He's done research into Roswell, New Mexico case, the Gulf Breeze case, which we'll talk about later on. He's also author of a book called Sworn to Secrecy, the 1947 Roswell Incident, which, by the way, is a fictionalized account. Okay, it's not a factual account. All right, we're speculating here about what the government knows or doesn't know. And the people who are involved in the disclosure movement, at least some of them, I think there are some very well-meaning people involved. There are a few, I think, just trying to exploit the situation. But the question always comes, and now we're looking at the year anniversary of the Obama administration. So do you think when any president takes office since the UFO question became so involved, someone walks into the president's office or a group of people and says, here's what's going on and this is why we can't reveal anything? Or do they say, this is the way it is, and you got to shut up because you're going to be out of here in four or eight years, but we're going to be here forever? Well, good question again, and I'm not sure if I, if I buy into the, the premise. I don't necessarily believe that anybody walks into the president's office and says, hey, you know, this is the situation. We're going to share it with you, but you've got to keep your mouth shut because you're going in four years or eight years. I think that there have, however, been 
presidents in the last uh, 20 years uh, that, in fact, have been told the truth. I think that the first one that comes to mind is uh, George Bush Sr., and only because Bush was the head of the CIA. I think the CIA and the NSA, certain people at the top of those branches of government, certainly know what's going on and, and, and have the truth. But I'm not uh, sure that it's the kind of knowledge or information that's shared even, at the, even with the President of the United States. I think Ronald Reagan probably was uh, on or in the uh, inner circle and was uh, exposed to the truth. I think Jimmy Carter tried only because Jimmy Carter had an experience, a UFO experience. Jimmy Carter was a, a, a nuclear physicist uh, by training prior to his political career, and uh, I think he asked the questions because he had experienced uh, a sighting that, that he couldn't explain, but I'm not sure that even uh, Jimmy Carter was given the, uh, the information. Well, that's so, one thing we forget about Carter, the fact that he is a scientist. You know, it's very unusual for people who are scientists to get into public office and rise as high as he did. That's true. That's true. You know, I guess Carter was uh, a Navy guy, and uh, I, I, I think that's important, and I think he asked the question because I think that of all branches of the service, it's not the Air Force that are the leaders in the UFO question, but I believe it's the Navy. Why? Why do you say that? All right. Do you see how synchronicity works here, ladies and gentlemen? David and I asked the same question at the same time. <laughs> Why the Navy? Uh, just because the history of the phenomenon shows more of an, a Navy, um, a Navy uh, input or participation than the other branches. Uh, you hear of the work that's the the scientific efforts being done by the Navy branch as opposed to Army, Marines, or, or even Air Force. My experience has been that anybody in the military that's in the know, when they're talking um, more from a scientific, technical, perhaps intellectual perspective, are Navy types as opposed to any of the other branches. Yeah, but there, you've got to have some reasoning behind that shit. I mean, it, it, it's if you're saying this, then do we then take that and extrapolate from that that the Navy is the primary branch looking into this issue because UFOs are primarily seen going in, in and out of the water? Is that what we're to, to get from that? Uh, not necessarily. Again, I think okay. it's uh, just um, and and there there have been there have been uh, sightings or reports information regarding UFOs entering in or going in and out of the water. Mm -hmm. But it's just that the technical research, the, the higher-end research that's being done by a military branch is being done by Navy as opposed to any of the other branches. I really don't have a whole lot more to give you other than that. Okay, well, all right, we get the point. But what about the intelligence agencies, NSA, CIA, etc.? Well, certainly CIA has been involved, uh, and just given the very nature of the NSA, uh, you know, uh, I, I can't, I can't prove any of this, but I think that they certainly have a, a heavy involvement as well. So we're talking, I guess, about different uh, arms or, or, or offices in, in the federal bureaucracy.
hypocrisy here, but um, again, I believe that it's Navy that's that's really spearheading this. Recently in the news, there's been information about November meetings, November 2009 meetings uh, with aliens. All right, but yeah, but you know, when you get to stuff like that, yeah. when you get to these things about possible alien meetings, you know, that's kind of where we say, you know what, there's no evidence of any of that. There's probably no evidence of that, no hard, hardcore evidence of that. That's true. But in the accounts that I've read about the November meetings, uh, they talk also about Vatican participation. All right. The account, which accounts are we talking about here? I hope not from the exopolitics people. Uh, probably, yes, the exopolitics people. All right. Well, let me ask you about that then, because since we raised the subject and, you know, we're going to want to know about this, what do you think of the exopolitics movement? You know, I can't I can't speak to that intelligently because I don't know a whole lot about it. I just read the accounts. I think this is an area where, you know, David and I have had problems with them because it looks like they're so ready and able to make decisions about things that have no evidence whatever. Yeah, I mean it. I mean it's ridiculous. They talk about Obama is going to disclose something and the story is he's not going to disclose something. Why? Well, no other president did, so what's the difference? And I think we're very concerned here when you want to talk about disclosure because here we're speaking about something that we'd all like to see, but then when we take it to exopolitics, I think we're getting into the ninth dimension here. It's just well, there's no not, there's not one credible person in, really in the movement. Now, that's really what it boils down to in the end. Exactly. If you look at the people who are in the exopolitics line, there's not one credible individual in that whole lineup. Not one. Well, if I can pick up on one thing that you said, uh, you talked about Obama in particular and his, uh, his disclosure eminent. The reason that I think that perhaps we may be closer to disclosure than we ever have been before uh, is because of Panetta. You know, Panetta was a real UFO enthusiast, and Panetta had spoken out uh, in years past uh, before becoming part of the Obama administration uh, for disclosure. And now he's really in, the, in a position where I'm sure he's got uh, knowledge and information that we'd all like to, to know about, and it might be the necessary catalyst that we're looking for in order for the president to get involved, become knowledgeable, and, and in fact share the information with the general public. Well, Panetta, of course, worked with the Clinton administration first, very close, very tight with the Clintons. Yes. So nothing happened there. We all thought something's going to happen in the 1990s because of that. Where to go? Uh, he, but at the time, uh, I think that he was more of an advisor to the president as opposed to actually heading up the CIA. So um, I just think that, uh, you know, things might be stacking up in the right way in order for this, this to happen. And then I'm being yeah. heavily speculative here. And maybe we're dragging you down the wrong road because, you know, we can all speculate and my speculation is as good as anybody's. I know David and I have some interesting speculations about things, but there's a lot of research that you've done. And maybe we should kind of zip back into some of that stuff. Now, back to Roswell. Let's kind of focus on that for a while yet. Back okay. to Roswell. What do we do from here? You know, what other information can we get? to take us one way or the other. And the reason I ask this is because there's another Roswell possibility, which is what if the Roswell case 
was nothing more than a secret weapon, as some thought in the beginning. How do we know it was E.T.? Or whatever they are. You know, obviously, there's probably two or three or four or five uh, explanations for what occurred in Roswell. But I believe that the majority of the information, the overwhelming uh, majority of information, points to the fact that it was uh, extraterrestrial in nature. You know, um, while living in Roswell, I talked with many of the survivors and their families. Uh, who played a, a, a big role in, in, in the incident itself. And the same story was woven through all of their accounts. There was a craft of unknown origin that, that did in fact crash on the ranch, the, the Foster Ranch north of Roswell. Uh, Mac Brazel, the ranch foreman, did find uh, crash debris uh, the morning after. Some say the, the fourth and the, thing, the crash itself occurred in the third. I believe it was uh, the, the fifth when it was discovered, when he discovered it, and the crash took place uh, late on July 4th. Uh, I had an opportunity to interview Mac's uh, son, and his son was or did in fact confirm everything about Mac's story. Others I interviewed actually saw uh, the crash wreckage pieces that that Mac uh, had collected and pocketed and shared with them. So, uh, you know, my my feeling is that it was uh, a craft of unknown origin, a craft of of strange. Uh, technology. I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with a controversial individual involved with the case, and that was Frank Kaufman. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard Frank Kaufman's story or not. You know what? Why don't you tell our listeners what it's all about? Frank Kaufman, who I who I had the opportunity of living about two blocks from while I was in Roswell, was actually involved in local uh, Roswell politics. And everybody knew Frank, and Frank uh, had a story to tell in that he was involved with a group called the Nine, an INE Nine, and they were they were a, a select group of, of military guys associated or connected with the 509th, uh, and he was actually involved with the crash recovery. Now I I probably spent or had 20 or, or 25 meetings with Frank over the the year and a half that I was there. Actually went to Frank's home and sat and talked with him and his, and his wife. And uh, you know I'm I, I pride myself in being a good judge of character, and uh, I also pride myself in being a good investigator. And I didn't ask leading questions. I understand the value of being a good listener in an interview-type situation like this. And I had the opportunity to do some real uh, character evaluation with Frank. And I got the impression that Frank was very sincere and was telling the truth. And Frank said uh, his story was that on the 4th, July 4th, 1947, a craft of unknown origin did, in fact, uh, fall to the earth on the Foster Ranch uh, north of Roswell, and that there were uh, five alien beings uh, recovered from the craft. Uh, Frank shared with me some of the 
outward appearance of the of the technology, uh, what he had seen there. Uh, he described in, in, in great detail what the exterior and, and interior of the craft looked like. So it's it's for reasons like that, gentlemen, that I believe that uh, we were talking about an extraterrestrial event. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We have Shep Sapolio. He's a physicist. UFO investigator wrote a fiction book about the Roswell incident called Sworn to Secrecy, the 1947 Roswell incident. Chet, you brought up Frank Hoffman. Now, this obviously raises a huge problem in that Kevin Randall, someone we feel is a pretty well-regarded researcher, a friend of the show, Randall eventually came to the conclusion that Kaufman was essentially fabricating much of his story based on uh, materials that his widow, Kaufman's widow, let other researchers look at look at after he passed away in uh, 2001. It really does look like Kaufman was basically making up tales to support his ever-changing story. So why do you feel that he was credible? Kevin Randall's um, partner who interestingly enough is no longer a partner with, and I understand the politics going on there, Mm -hmm. a gentleman by the name of Don Schmidt, Mm -hmm. um, hosted or emceed uh, the documentary for television that I did on the Roswell event called Conspiracy X, Government Secrets Revealed. And that's actually the, the first undertaking uh, for me after spending the year and a half in Roswell and doing the research. Kevin and uh, Dawn um, both started out going down the main, the, the same road um, regarding the Roswell incident and, uh, and had similar interpretations of the evidence. I, I, I have, you know, all the respect in the world for both gentlemen, but uh, I can tell you that among many of the Roswell researchers, people have different opinions uh, about some of the characters and players in the Roswell incident. And Frank Coffin is a, certainly a perfect example of this. Um, I spent, uh, and I think that I can, I can prove, document this, I spent more time with Frank Kaufman than any other researcher ever has. And I got to know both he and his wife very well. Uh, they became personal friends of mine. 
And again, going back to my, my, you know, one of the things that I pride myself in, and that is having the ability to um, make good character judgment. I believe that although Frank was like all of us uh, from time to time, and that Frank might have embellished certain um, parts of his story, and Frank enjoyed the limelight like we all do from time to time, uh, I believe that deep down Frank was telling a story, uh, a true story, about what occurred in 47 in Roswell. But isn't that the big problem with Roswell as a whole, the fact that we have a lot of these people who over the years might have embellished their stories? So how do we find the core truth? Maybe Kaufman was perfectly sincere in 1947, but in 1997, you know, 50 years later, etc., etc., the memories fade. Maybe the story has been told and retold so many times that a lot of the core accurate incidents and facts, you know, they kind of go by the wayside. So where do we find the truth in all that? That's the whole problem with Roswell, isn't it? Well, it's a, it's, it's a problem with a lot of, a lot of things, uh, and it's just uh, part of human nature. You know, certainly uh, things that took place in my life 20, 30 years ago, um, you know, you, you, you remember that the event occurred and uh, you, you have uh, the basic outline in your mind of, of what happened. But, you know, as you said, the, de the details themselves start to fade. And, okay, but uh, then, you know, one point we raised earlier was I suggested, you know what, could this have been some kind of secret weapon? And you brought out Mr. Kaufman. And how much of what he says and what he saw is based on what he experienced? How much based on the science fiction movies of the period, based on books like Behind the Flying Saucers by Frank Scully, which actually talked about the Aztec UFO crash? How much is fiction? How much did he really experience? How much does he know? How do we even find out anymore? Well, we can we can look at what he says. I just want to interject for a moment, guys, because I want to bring up a, one specific example instead of these vague generalities. Let's get to a specific example where at one point Kaufman states on the record that he has no knowledge of radar. He doesn't know anything about radar. Uh, his direct quote is, I didn't work on radar. I wasn't a mechanic. I wasn't a pilot. Then later on, we have him saying that um, he, quote-unquote, received a call from Brigadier General Martin F. Scallon of the Air Defense Command ordering him to report to the radar at White Sands. Uh, McKenzie, uh, Kaufman, not McKenzie because that was his fake name in the book, Kaufman was to monitor the object's movements and report them directly to the general. Uh, Kaufman could not leave the scope unattended for even the shortest of times. So basically, we have him saying in his own words that, he doesn't know anything about radar, but all of a sudden he's being called to monitor the radar. It doesn't jive up. So those are Kaufman's words. How do you reconcile that, Chet? I agree. I agree that uh, that throws up some red flags. But um, I can look at it from another angle, and I don't know what kind of rationalization this might be or how much of this you might buy. But if, in fact, Kaufman was... Uh, selected uh, for uh, a particular job or was had had a responsibility in investigating what was going on in Roswell. Supposedly, these uh, 
these these craft uh, of that were flying at these great speeds, uh, demonstrating unheard of uh, flight characteristics at the time. If if Kaufman was one of a number of men that was assigned to look into this uh, in greater detail by the Pentagon, you know, it would be I, I could see a scenario where Kaufman goes to the radar operators, uh, uh, pulls up uh, you know a seat there in in, in front of the scopes. And uh, is taking notes and uh, is asking questions and being a good listener and uh, and recording the events that are occurring. Uh, that doesn't mean that he's necessarily you know spinning the dials and and calibrating the instruments. So you know I think that I think that would that be a standard not- procedure though? I mean. Look, there are logical holes all throughout this. And and given this is a problematic topic, we understand that. Um, But you brought up Frank Kaufman. And it seems, and I don't, I've not written a book about Roswell, neither has Gene. Um, There's, we think that there's definitely something to the idea that something unusual happened at Roswell. Right. But Chet, why bring up witnesses that are contaminated what what does that how does that help you further along this topic and, and this speaks to a larger problem in in talking about the UFO topic and, we, and there was we did a little preamble before you came on the show and we had mentioned something about the fact that so often you find good witnesses getting mixed into a bucket with bad witnesses in you can look at any of the many cases where there have been very intense anomalous episodes um <laughs> i guess i'm trying to sort of work through vocalize my frustration here in that you brought up kaufman but yet it, it's pretty clear i think to anybody who's looked into this and, and i'm going to take kevin randall's word to be perfectly frank with you anytime over don schmidt's uh we've had don schmidt on the show i've had personal interactions with don schmidt uh, there are a lot of problems with Don Schmidt on a number of levels. Uh, none of those problems, I think, exist with Kevin Randall. But we feel like Kevin Randall is a totally qualified researcher and that, you know, he's, we think he's the real deal. If, speaking for myself, I don't want to speak for Gene here, but if Randall distanced himself from this guy, uh, from this guy Kaufman, I, I'm, I'm going to go with his lead on this. Well, uh, uh, Dave, I understand you know, where you're coming from, but okay. uh, and, and you're right. I did open the can of worms, right? And I think maybe subconsciously uh, I did this because I think the coffin really got a bad rap. And if you look at all of Randall, what Randall has written, okay, and and I'm not I'm not trying to make derogatory statements about Killen's work or uh, Don Schmidt's work. Um, but the critique of Kaufman, uh, it, it's, it, it's not in cement. It's not, he's not that definitive. I mean, he has an opinion. He thinks that maybe some of the things that Kaufman offered as evidence was um, faked. But um, I don't think that he necessarily says uh, 100% that he thought that Frank Kaufman was, was a fraud. And I'm suggesting that I spent more time with Frank Kaufman than Randall and Schmidt together spent with Kaufman. I got to know Frank on a personal level. And I believe that 
uh, some of, if not all of, what Frank Kaufman uh, offered relative to the incident uh, was true. Well, how do we find out what part is real, what part is fabricated, what part is just bad memory? You know, we'll give the guy uh, I mean, the benefit it's, it's, of the doubt. He's no longer here to defend himself. Okay, let's say Frank yeah. Kaufman is not here. Let's not, of course, let's not attack the dead. Let's respect the dead and say, okay, this person was there. But what part do we believe in? How do we nail it down? Is there a second witness, a second person? Another way, if you get contradictory testimony, you look for areas where you have other people who can confirm what he says. Who confirms what he said? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Uh, and I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, there's also another possibility, and that is that Frank might have been uh, closely involved with the incident, but maybe uh, an agent of disinformation. You know, maybe Frank's job was not only to share some of the truth, but uh, to give us um, some bad leads as well. Well, isn't that also I the biggest that. problem we have in the UFO field, especially if we look at some of the things that went on during the 50s and 60s especially? We had, for example, I always mention this NICAP, an organization that was run by Major Donald Kehoe, former Marine officer. Actually, he was a balloon pilot. <laughs> if anyone remembers this, this is going back, you know, way before any of us were born. But he brings on a former head of the CIA into NICAP. We had just a couple of weeks ago John Carpenter, who is a UFO abduction researcher, works with MUFON. And he knew Leonard Stringfield. Now, Leonard Stringfield was in the military, but he became a civilian public information person for a large industry. But he did a lot of investigation to UFOs, talked to lots of military contacts. Again, how much of this is disinformation? How much of Roswell? If Kaufman's disinformation, <laughs> you know, really, what else is there other than him? What are the compelling aspects of Roswell that we can pinpoint as consistent forgetting the areas of imperfect memory or deception? Well, there's a lot about Roswell that I think that um, that is factual. I think that that that, that we can uh, that is well documented, um, and uh, some of it I mentioned in the book, and also in in, in the uh, documentary that I did. For example, um, we all know that something happened there, and something that was uh, important enough for the Air Force to give us three different explanations uh, for uh, since 1947. Uh, first, it was a weather balloon, and then it was a Raywind target, and then uh, lastly, it was the uh, Project Mogul. So. In order, if they're motivated to give us three different interpretations of the event, then it's obvious to me that something happened there. A couple of other facts. Um, there were eight confirmed flights under high security out of Roswell Army Airfield between July 5th and July 8th, 1947. It's hard to believe that these flights were just to transport parts of a weather balloon. Relative to Mac Brazel, the ranch foreman up at the Foster Ranch that recovered some of the crash debris, um, I was able to confirm that uh, after his uh, time spent at the 509th, I guess he was somewhat sequestered there for about a week after the event, um, he came home driving a new pickup truck. And shortly thereafter, um, 
the guy who had been dirt poor uh, suddenly had the money to buy a new meat locker, commercial meat locker in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Came across some money real fast from somewhere. So he was uh, paid to do what he did. Or to keep his mouth shut. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's an important point, too. Was the improved lifestyle something that just happened with no explanation, or is there any evidence anywhere as to how he might have gotten money in a legitimate way, or maybe he was doing stuff on the side we don't know about that wasn't too kosher? <laughs> I guess it's always a possibility. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I know for a fact, though, that the man was dirt poor, made very few bucks uh, working as the ranch foreman at the Foster Ranch, and did, in fact, within the year, have a commercial meat locker in Las Cruces and drive a new pickup truck. And it all happened after the uh, time spent at the 509th in Roswell. And no explanation as how he came into this newfound wealth? Well, there's an explanation. The explanation is, is that he was paid off by the government to keep his mouth shut. Other than that, anything other else? That, you know, maybe an inheritance. Maybe, like I said, he, he maybe bet the right horse or he went to Las right. Vegas. Right. That's I guess certainly a possibility. I don't think Vegas existed then, uh, Gene. Sorry. <laughs> well, okay. Well, certainly whatever equivalent there was at that time in terms of betting. But seriously, um, <laughs> let's no seriously. Let's talk about you know perhaps a more relevant issue. Sure. Here, let me let me put this to Chet. So Chet, you spoke to Brazel's son, right? Brazel was the first person who had, who had access to the debris. Is that correct? Not, not how I interpret the events and not how the events are represented in in the book. All right. Um, I believe that the military on the, uh, the the people at the 509th on the night of um, July 4th, 1947, were aware of the fact uh, that there, a craft went down north of the city, north of Roswell. And I think they were aware of that uh, two ways. One, I believe that there were some eyewitnesses from Roswell that saw something exploding to the north. Uh, and also because Alamogordo radar were watching uh, these crafts, not just one craft, but a number of crafts moving at, at high rates of speed uh, all day long. And they saw one of them go down. As, as Frank Kaufman says, the radar scope lit up like a Christmas tree, and they saw one of them, uh, and they interpreted it as the craft going down. So I believe that the recovery event started taking place late that night, uh, probably around 11.30 p.m., July 4th. I think Mac Brazel was riding um, with a neighbor, over the uh, ranch on the 5th, the morning of the 5th, and came across uh, crash debris. Uh, point being that there were probably two, perhaps three different sites uh, where there were crash remnants. I'll tell you what, let's pursue this chat in part two of the show because a lot of ground to cover, and it'd be nice to maybe get into a little bit of Gulf Breeze before we let you go. We'll be back on the other side of the Paracast. So, Frank, what do you think about UFOs? I saw one once. I think they're out there. You know, what, what they are, I don't know. Well, I believe that something is out there. I think that those things that you see in the sky are only one small manifestation of a whole wide range of phenomena that people haven't properly named or have attributed the 
wrong source to. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We have Shet Sapolio. He's author of a book called Sworn to Secrecy, the 1947 Roswell Incident, which is a fictionalized account of what possibly happened in 1947 during this incident. Before you, you ask a question, I want to get back to the reason I asked about sure, go ahead. Brazel's getting access to the wreckage. And correct me if I'm wrong here, Chet, but presumably Brazel got a hold of some of this wreckage at some point. Right? That's correct. Okay. Now, I'm not trying to say that Mac Brazel would think the way I would think, but two points, and I'd like you to address these. Point A, he gets access to this stuff. I know that if I got access to this stuff, you better believe that I'd get a couple of the pieces of that stuff, and I'd hide them away in a very deep hole somewhere, whether it was a safety deposit box or a deep hole in the ground on a big ranch where nobody looked, knew where to look. I'd hide a couple of pieces of the stuff away for two reasons. Reason A, it's potentially alien stuff or non-human technology. I'd want to have act. I want to. I'd want to own a couple of pieces of that. I think any human on Earth would. B, I'd want to have that stuff as a, let's call it a security deposit. That if the army was going to mess with me, I'd want basically to be holding a couple of pieces of evidence, so I had a bargaining chip in all of this. Now, I'd like your thoughts about that. And given that you spoke to Brazel's son, did you ever bring that question up about, well, if your, if your dad had access to this wreckage? And I understand this idea of, well, the, you know, the military threatens him. Even more of a reason to take a couple of pieces of that stuff and hide him away as a security or bargaining chip. Did you ask his son about that? Yeah, in fact, uh, a question very similar to that in exploring, you know, did you get to see the materials? Did your father leave anything behind? Did he share them with you? Mm -hmm. um, materials were kept, and weren't all the materials weren't recovered by Marcel uh, when they went out to the ranch, and then later when they took an envoy out to uh, to to scrub the area. Um, I don't know if either of you gentlemen have ever been to the Foster Ranch, but right in the area where you go in and the the area recognized as being the debris field, there's a stone structure that still stands. And I'm not sure exactly what it was used for back in the time, maybe just a tool shed or something, um, parts perhaps to do fence repair in the area or whatever. But some of the crash debris, some of the pieces were stored underneath the flooring. And it was about two years after the fact that uh, the government revisited uh, Brazel's son. And he, at that time, disclosed the fact, out of fear, that there were some pieces that, that, that they had in, in their possession, and, and he gave them up to the government. Now, my question then was, well, you know, did, did you keep anything, anything at all? Hoping, of course, that the guy would say yes and then have an opportunity to see it. Um, and 
you got to understand that probably Mac and his son were maybe not the brightest bulbs. Uh, and um, they, he just gave me sort of a, a far, he had a far off look in his eye when he responded. And he said, no, you know, we, we, we gave it all away. Uh, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But, you know, yeah. my sentiments are the same as yours. If, if I had an opportunity to, uh, to recover uh, extraterrestrial materials, I'd certainly want to keep a few for all the reasons that you mentioned. I mean, it would be a yeah. great insurance policy, wouldn't it? Absolutely. I don't buy the sun story. Sorry. I just I can't buy it. It doesn't make any sense. It's got nothing to do with intelligence at that point. That's just that's actually that has more to do with greed than intelligence. Um, everybody's got greed in them. And I know that, uh, and, and again, I'm not trying to transpose my way of looking at this on somebody else, but uh, I think that's that's real problematic. I, I want to go way back to something you said before, though, uh, Chet, because on the Paracast, one of the things that we, we've become known for is this idea of trying to open up the topic to try to figure out what's really going on here. And... There was something that I know just recently I had a very frustrating encounter with regards to, to this issue, but something that we've worked very hard on this show to, to try to accomplish is a separation of the terms UFO and extraterrestrial, uh, given that at this point, really, the, the, the question of sourcing of this uh, uh, phenomenon is still, for the most part, we think, up in the air. When we see technology that's doing things that we can't do, at that point, I think both Gene and I are comfortable to say that we're dealing with non-human technology. And I do feel comfortable saying that. But this idea of extraterrestrial technology, uh, I think, is, is still problematic. And, and there was something you said before. I just want to point this out to you. I'm not trying to come down, you anything, or, or, come down on you or anything, but... Um, you, you and I'm trying to remember the exact wording you used, which was uh, something about the fact that this was an extraterrestrial craft. But then, within a couple of sentences, you said of unknown origin. And it seems to me that on just an intellectual level, there's a contradiction there. Um, we don't know for a fact that this is extraterrestrial technology. I know a lot of people have a lot of arguments about this and have a lot of thoughts about this, and they're all valid. And there's a good likelihood that we're dealing with something that ultimately, ultimately sourced from somewhere other than this planet. But I just submit to you this idea that if you had an alien source civilization that had been on this planet for many millions, maybe tens, maybe hundreds of millions longer, uh, years longer than humans had been here, would it be relevant at that point? Would it be reasonable to refer to them as extraterrestrial? Let's say that they had been here for... 100 million years. Well, that's a good point. So, you see what I'm saying? You see where I'm getting? Yeah. I'm going with this. Right. Yeah, so so what you're proposing is is that this might be advanced technology, but not not uh, from a, a source outside of our planet, but rather from a uh, intelligence, a life form perhaps that has been here longer than what humans have. Correct. Yeah. Well, it's certainly a possibility. And Do you think I it's any less of a possibility than craft coming from other planets right now? I do. I think it's less of a possibility. You know, I've heard the uh, inner Earth stories and theories uh, 
I would probably give more credence to the possibility that we occupy uh, the similar space with something interdimensional than I would the idea that we uh, occupy the planet uh, with a civilization that's been around a long longer than our own. But why are those mutually exclusive? That's where you're losing me. Well, I don't know that they're mutually exclusive. Um, but the way you just posited it, you're, you're making it sound that way. If you had... Let me just throw this out, because we're having a conversation here. It's less of an interview than a conversation. So what if you had an ancient species on this planet that had figured out a way to coexist here with us except with a dimensional or even a time offset? Right. Well, at that point, and this comes right back to your area of expertise, physics, when you have a technologically advanced civilization that can break down time-space in a way that we at this point in our technological evolution have no understanding of. If you have a species that can essentially travel at something faster than light by essentially warping time-space, what is the difference between an extraterrestrial visitor and an interdimensional visitor? Wouldn't uh, the ability to move between star systems quickly essentially make those two things equivalent? Yeah, I think it's uh, semantics. I think that if we define extraterrestrial as uh, same space-time, then you know their their definitions are are a matter of, of semantics. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, and mm -hmm. you're right. I did talk about an extraterrestrial visitor or extraterrestrial technology. Uh, and maybe it's it's from biased thinking. Um, I just I, I don't I just don't buy into the theory that uh, we might be sharing the planet with an advanced race that we're unaware of or an advanced uh, species that we're unaware of. Sure. I'm not sure, sure what it means to say that we share the same planet, but we share it in different dimensions. I'm not sure what it means to say that we're sharing them the same space time. We think of space-time, we think of space travel, we think of time travel in uh, a four-dimensional continuum. To talk about a hyper-dimensioned existence uh, is talking about a, um, an extraterrestrial an existence outside of our own. And again, I have problems with the with the semantics of the definition here and, and what we're trying to say. So you make a good point. It's just that um, I, I'm not I'm not sure that we're disagreeing or we're agreeing to disagree. And I'm not sure exactly what's going on there. I think you, I think it's a it's it's a it's a sort of a word game that we're playing at this. Well, then let's talk about physics for a moment. Let's let's leave let's leave terminology behind. Let's talk about science. Okay. All right. So let's say you were 50,000 light years away from Earth. And let's say that uh, you were coming to the planet Earth with some regularity because, you know, we, we know that there are large numbers of sightings uh, that occur every year that have been for a long time, even before the 1940s. It's clear there's a history of UFO involvement on this planet and sightings on this planet that goes back well, pretty much as far as recorded history. So if, if we assume for a moment that's the case, then um, we've got craft that are coming here on a fairly regular basis. Uh, we're guessing they're not 
originating from another planet in the solar system. Uh, we think I think we know enough now to, to think that that's probably unlikely. Uh, so at that unless, point, unless they're yeah. doing unless they're doing what you just suggested early on, and they're uh, on a planet that we find uninhabitable to the human race, but that they're somehow uh, they're somehow occupying that planet uh, in a different dimension. So uh, that's why I'm saying that the, the discussion. Uh, in order to go somewhere with the discussion, we have mm-hmm. to uh, sort of agree on terminology. Okay. Let's so I'm say... I'm sorry for interrupting. You were, you, were, you were... No, 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 no. No, no, this is all relevant. Yeah. Uh, because one of the things that that I personally find very curious about this whole topic is the vast morphology, the vast variable morphology of the craft that have been seen. We have not just a couple of different types of craft. We have a pretty wide assortment of different types of craft that have been witnessed. Everything from small balls of light all the way up to extremely large triangular craft that could be up to a mile or two or three in, in, uh, in width. And as we map things over time, we do see that there are some elements that are fairly consistent. The disk shape. Uh, craft is a fairly consistent thing, even though, again, uh, there have been a fairly vast variety of variations on that base morphology. Um, and that has been consistent. But like the cigar ships, they happened earlier on. Triangular craft came later on. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there is a question about this idea that some of the triangular craft, the smaller triangular craft, could possibly be black technologies that are that are man-made. Right. Um, but my assumption is that if you're seeing something that's a mile long in the sky, I'd be willing to bet it's not ours. I would. I would. I would make a similar bet. Right. Okay. So we're on the same page with that. So you have this vast variety of different craft. Now, at that point, do we do we presume that that vast variety of different types of craft are coming from different places, or do we think that maybe this is a distractionary or diversionary tactic to confuse humans about where these things are coming from? Okay, I think we were also uh, talking about um, different uh, technologies, right? Uh, perhaps similar technologies, but the different craft that we see occupying our airspace um, you know, as you said, there's a vast array of, you know, we're talking about small balls of light to uh, craft that are miles and miles uh, long. Uh, I think that we're talking primarily about warp drive technology or wormhole technology. And um, I think that uh, it makes perfect sense to believe that uh, we're being visited by more than one uh, group. secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free sent right to your mailbox. 
plus a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We have Chet Sapolio, and he's the author of a book called Sworn to Secrecy, the 1947 Roswell Incident. He spent time a fair amount of time in Roswell checking things out, and he's also done some on-site investigation into the Gulf Breeze case, and I'll ask some of his reactions later on. Pursuing the stuff about propulsion, what kind of physics do you study in your work? Well, I'm, I'm interested primarily in general relativity and, and, and quantum theory. Um, that's That's been my focus. Um, I, I am interested, as I mentioned early on, in the UFO uh, question for a number of reasons, but my primary uh, driver is if, in fact, we're uh, being visited uh, from the edges of the universe, how are these people getting or how are these entities getting to us? And certainly not, um, they're certainly not using conventional physics to do that. I don't believe necessarily that they are defying the laws of physics, um, but maybe uh, they're using physics that we're yet not aware of. Um, so my focus has been primarily on uh, propulsion systems. Uh, I'm comfortable with discussing ion propulsion, plasma uh, propulsion, nuclear propulsion. There's going to, uh, in the future, uh, probably be what they call light sail, S-A-I-L propulsion, utilizing like solar winds. Uh, but my greatest interest is in the area of warp drive propulsion, um, wormhole uh, navigation, and dimensional shifting. Okay, is this something, though, that's just really steeped in deep theoretical discussion, or is it something that we could look at as a potential reality in our lifetimes? Well, the uh, latter systems that I mentioned, the warp drive and the wormhole um, propulsion systems, and even uh, talking about the dim dimensional shifting, uh, this is all stuff that comes from physics that was discovered at the turn of the 20th century. And we're talking, of course, about um, the work of Einstein. We're talking about his special theory of relativity, and we're talking about his general theory of relativity. There were, have been, of late, actually as early as, I guess, 30, 35, solutions to Einstein's field equations that made possible things like uh, wormholes or tears in space-time. And these are not just uh, mathematical oddities, but uh, certainly um, physical realities. And the kinds of things that uh, we are, are taking, you know, things used, a uh, uh, very used cliche, but the old science fiction has now become science fact. And um, so, so these are these are the things that uh, are are still on the drawing boards. Uh, we don't have a warp drive yet, and unless the hedron uh, 
linear accelerator uh, that they just recently fired up over in Geneva, unless that creates wormholes, we haven't built any yet. But um, it, it's, these things are just not too far away. Uh, with uh, probably, hopefully, within my lifetime, certainly my children's lifetime, um, we're going to see these kinds of things occur. Chet, please give us a working definition of warp drive. First of all, when you talk about warp drive or uh, utilizing wormholes for propulsion, um, what we're talking about is theories that uh, overcome the light barrier, uh, the speed of light. Einstein's special theory of relativity shows us that uh, overcoming uh, the speed of light um, or uh, information transfer uh, at greater than the speed of light is an impossibility. But then comes along the general theory of relativity. And the, there are certain solutions to the general theory that allow us to talk about uh, these two things, the warp drive and the wormholes. Probably the best way to explain warp drive is to better understand Einstein's field equations. The equations themselves, the basic field equation, equates space-time curvature, or the way space-time is deformed or bent, it equates that with um, matter and, and energy, the amount of matter or energy present, or the configuration of the matter or energy present in a particular space-time. So basically, the field equations um, the left side of the equation, uh, this uh, space-time tells matter how to move, and that's our propulsion. And the right side of the equation, um, matter tells space-time how to bend or how to curve. So with warp drive, and the credit has to be given to uh, some recent work, and I mean by recent in the last 15 years, to a physicist by the name of Miguel Kubray. And basically, what Kubray did was he, the story, as the story goes, he uh, took a lead from uh, Star Trek, and he asked the question if, in fact, you wanted to use uh, warp drive technology, how would it work? And so he worked backwards. To give you a quick example, if you throw a pebble into a pond and you consider the surface of the water as space-time, the space-time manifold, you create certain waves in the water with each pebble that you throw. But if you work backwards, if you look at a particular kind of a wave, you can determine what size or, or configuration of, of pebbles that you need to throw in order to create the waves. Mm -hmm. And that's what Alcubarre did. Alcubarre said, if I want to exceed the light barrier, I've got to be able to take a craft and sit it in a bubble uh, and then have the space or space-time actually expand in front of the craft and have it contract behind the craft. And by doing so, um, he's able to cause the craft to exceed the speed of light. Now, the craft really doesn't move at all. What is happening is that the space between his destination is contracting, or coming closer. And in the bubble, 
uh, he would experience normal time, and the warp drive um, technology would uh, would get him from here to there and, and do it in, in faster than light speeds or at faster than light speeds. So where does mass come into this equation? Mass comes into the equation because in order to make uh, the appropriate space-time curvatures, the requirement is that you would have to utilize negative mass in order to do that. So, you know, when we define mass with special theory relativity, we say that uh, energy is equal to mass times the speed of light squared. And by using simple algebraic manipulation, if we solve for mass, we see that that mass is positive. It is a positive value. In order to make faster than light possible, we would have to use a value of mass that was negative or multiply the mass by negative one. So it's, a, it's exotic matter. Well, um, would that be, just to throw terminology out there, then tell me if, if I'm just completely off on this, would, would a negative mass be equivalent to negation of mass? No. Okay. A negative mass would be just that. It would be, uh, it would be negative mass and, and have characteristics. It would, first of all, would have negative energy associated with it. Uh, just by equals mc squared. If you have a negative m on the right side of the equation, you're going to have a negative e and e on the left side of the equation. We know that negative energy exists. It was uh, first discovered in the early 50s, actually it was, I believe, late 40s, 47 or 48, uh, by a physicist by the name of Casimir. And the Casimir effect basically uh, is accomplished by taking two plates, two metal plates, and um, two metal plates, non-charged plates, uh, sitting side by side, you know, have a gravitational attraction like any two masses do. Mm -hmm. But they discovered that by the closer that you put the plates, and it's, uh, it's related to the fourth power of the distance between them, the closer you put the plates, you experience a negative energy between them. What it has to do with is the quantum theory. Um, space-time, the vacuum, is seething with particle and antiparticle creation all the time. And the total energy with particle and antiparticle creation and then annihilation is, of course, zero. But with particle and antiparticle creation, to the exterior of the plates, you have it going on all around you, or all around the plates. But the interior, on the interior of the plates, and that's really where we're, we're analyzing to find the negative energy, you have less of the particle and particle creation going on. And consequently, um, you have a negative energy situation. So it's that negative energy that we're talking about that, is, that results from the negative mass that's required in order for the uh, Akubere warp drive to work. Okay, so quick question for you. In looking at your bio, it says that you studied undergrad physics and philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh and at the graduate level of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania State, but did you receive an advanced degree in physics from Penn State? I didn't get a Ph.D. I was in the Ph.D. program, and I left. Mm -hmm. I, was, I, was, I was ill the last year. I have a year of residency yet to do in order to, uh, to get the doctorate. Okay. 
And just out of curiosity, what what do you do? Like, what's your normal job, if I, if we may inquire? Um, well, presently I'm, I'm retired, but I worked uh, in the uh, was in business for myself for thirty some years, and um, primarily in the energy arena. I did a uh, I had an energy conservation business for a while, and then I was a, 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 a uh, one of the four founding fathers of, of a company out of uh, Los Alamos, New Mexico. And it's really where, where my roots were, what my connections were to New Mexico, and how I decided to take some time to go into Roswell. But um, a company called SolarRack, where we worked on a process um, to take solar energy and um, collect it with large dishes, 30-meter uh, dishes, and focus it on carbon dioxide, uh, attaining temperatures of around 2,300 degrees centigrade, and actually causing the carbon dioxide uh, to dissociate in the carbon monoxide and oxygen, and then run the carbon monoxide through water and dissociate water in hydrogen and oxygen. What does that mean, by the way, to real people as opposed to scientists? What is the outcome of that? Well, the outcome is that we uh, create hydrogen from water. Uh, we burn the hydrogen. Uh, first of all, we use the solar energy during the day to power turbines to generate uh, electricity during the day and have the solar process that I just outlined running simultaneously producing hydrogen and then burning the hydrogen at night after the sun goes down in order to continue to power the turbines and continue to produce electricity 24-7. Okay, now that's interesting. That's almost worth another kind of discussion. Yeah, <laughs> and then ultimately, if I may complete that, uh, of course, when you burn hydrogen, uh, you get water back. So the process has to, the water has to be replenished, and obviously you need the sun every day. But it's it's a clean uh, form of alternative energy. The 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 patent and the company was sold uh, about four and a half years ago uh, to a firm that put up a place in uh, Colorado, in Louisville, Colorado, and uh, the company is now called Sundrop Fuels, and um, they're on their way to uh, big things. They have a 10 megawatt plant that that they have up and. Uh, they're planning on building these plants, you know, worldwide. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. This is the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. 
We have Chet Sapolio. We've been talking about Roswell, New Mexico. We haven't gotten into Gulf Breeze and... We're now into, I guess, alternative sources of energy, which is was your day job before you retired. So <laughs> that can almost start a complete other discussion. But we were focusing on UFO propulsion methods, possible UFO propulsion methods, talking about antimatter and wormholes and all that stuff. Let's get back maybe in the last 28, 29 minutes we have left here kind of summing up Roswell a little bit. Obviously, we have contradictory claims as to some of the things that went on. But now as we're sitting here in 2010 when we do this show, what more can we do with Roswell? Is there any reason to go on with research into that subject? Is everything out there already and we have to just go to something else? Well, as I said early on, um, it has been a race with the undertaker. And I think there might be three or four uh, uh, survivors still out there that are associated with it. Um, the last I heard, uh, Glenn Dennis is, is, is thriving and, and, and doing well. As, as you guys know, I'm sure that we lost Walter Hobbs, I guess, almost two years ago now. Frank Kaufman, he's he's been gone for, I guess, what, three or four years. He died so, in 2001, actually, Frank Kaufman. Uh, is that right? So yeah. eight years. So it's been, or it, it, it's difficult to talk to anybody that, that that was directly involved. I guess we still have family and friends, acquaintances uh, that we could work with. But I really believe that uh, I really believe that the. the truth of Roswell has to come from the government. And if the government doesn't disclose anything, nothing will ever happen after this, basically. Well, you know, I really don't know. I mean, you, you, need, you need to get facts from somewhere, and, you know, people can uh, put on paper what they know, what their experiences have been. Uh, but unless we get uh, input or disclosure from the government someday, I'm not sure that we'll ever know any more about the Roswell incident. So why did you decide to, choo to choose a fictional setting for your book versus do a nonfiction book? I guess uh, I wouldn't imagine a number of our listeners would be very curious about that. Well, it's a fair question. Um, there have been many accounts uh, written about Roswell. And many of the accounts written face the same kind of uh, constructive criticism that you guys have offered today during this interview about what is real, you know, who can you trust, uh, how can how can you uh, discern between truth and, and fiction, fabrication, and so on. I was fascinated with the Roswell event. I know that from my research that, that something uh, out of the ordinary certainly happened in Roswell. I met many of the people that were involved in Roswell and uh, many good people that were involved with Roswell, either directly or indirectly, that firmly are uh, convinced that uh, something occurred and they had a story to tell. I wanted to uh, perhaps weave a saga about uh, the event utilizing real people. I mean, all the names that we mentioned today, including uh, a name perhaps we haven't mentioned, Colonel Blanchard, who's the, the, the main character of the book, these are all real people. There were maybe three out of 15 characters in the book that were purely fictional that, that I used. But most of the characters in the book were real people. And um, 
I have a vivid imagination. I guess you never could tell that from the interview here today. But uh, <laughs> uh, I do have a vivid imagination, and I certainly am enthralled with the Roswell uh, incident. And um, I decided that uh, maybe a refreshing way to approach this would be to take real characters and real events and weave uh, a, a saga about uh, how it might have happened. So this is ripped from the headlines, as they say on Law and Order. There you go. I guess you could say that that's how it was done. I mean, we know, for example, that Walter Hopp took a press release uh, to the Roswell Daily Record that he got from Colonel Blanchard, or he was uh, ordered to uh, to give to the Roswell Daily Record or to the media by Colonel Blanchard. We know that a day later, General Ramey, Blanchard's uh, superior, also uh, got a press release that, um, in essence, uh, made you know Blanchard's press release look somewhat ridiculous. We know that we know that that took place. We know that that was real. Uh, I believe that everybody believes uh, that something uh, happened around July Fourth, 1947. Uh, whether it was extraterrestrial or not, you know, I guess uh, maybe we'll never know. Uh, so. I took the events that we know and that we can document, that we can prove, uh, took place. Uh, didn't know really what their interpretation exactly was, and again, probably no one does, and thought that it might be refreshing and a different approach to uh, do a, uh, a historical fiction on it. So, Chet, a lot of people who get involved in looking into these topics typically do so because at some point they see an odd thing in the sky. Is this the case with you? Did you get involved in this because you had a sighting at some point? Well, that's really an exciting question. Um, first of all, I, 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 I want to lay some groundwork before I answer. Um, okay. You know, I've, I've had some pretty formal and pretty extensive training in physics. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a private pilot. Uh, I secured a private pilot's license back in uh, 76. You know, I, I think I'm a pretty level-headed guy. I've had a pretty extensive training in, in sciences. Uh, uh, I, I understand a little bit about celestial objects and what goes goes on in the in the skies. I've been trained, uh, actually twice. I was involved once about 20 years ago, and then got re-involved recently with MUFON, and went through their uh, investigation uh, MUFON investigators course. I understand a little bit about um, um, behavioral psychology and uh, how we view things and how we interpret things. Um, So I realize that maybe 5% of those things seen that are called flying saucers or UFOs by the general public, maybe only 5% of them are uh, not explainable, where the other 95% can be explained by natural phenomena or aircraft, whatever. But that being said, I have a pretty extensive history of of things uh, that I've seen in the skies through the years. I remember at age four, um, playing outside my home, and uh, I remember we talked. We've talked about this a number of times because my family uh, brought it up from time to time because they also experienced it. But I remember looking overhead, 
almost to the point where I had to fall backwards. And I understand normally as a child playing, you don't look that straight overhead in a 90-degree angle. But I remember seeing a red triangular object in the sky. And I'm going to give my age away here, but that was 1953 when that occurred. And that stuck with me for, you know, all through my life. Then at age 11, I was uh, in a different location, but, but close, uh, western Pennsylvania. Uh, and it was a family gathering. And I remember... Uh, actually lying on the uh, grass uh, there in the front yard, uh, family all around, and looking up overhead and, and seeing a diamond-shaped object in the sky. And I remember bringing it to everyone's attention, and it, was, it wasn't moving. It was, it was uh, you know, very strange. And I ended up going in to the, my, my home and calling Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And I, as an 11-year-old, had the opportunity to talk with somebody at Project Blue Book. And the guy was very nice uh, and uh, took all the information and uh, didn't act in any way skeptical or whatever, just was very professional and took the information. And um, then after that, to continue the, uh, the uh, list here, at age 16, I uh, heard about, actually through the pastor of my church, heard about sightings that were taking place in a town called Indiana, Pennsylvania. Uh, and, and, you know, week after week in the newspaper, these people continue to uh, be saying things. And it ends up that a power plant that exists there now um, was being built at the time. And on a hillside above the power plant where there were some homes, people were seeing these things. And I ended up going there with a number of friends and actually saw trace evidence on the ground, um, burnt spots in the ground, uh, and um, spent the night there on the hillside, uh, actually doing a sky watch, and saw something that was quite phenomenal. I, um, I remember we were up most of the night, uh, no alcohol or drugs involved, uh, <laughs> uh, sitting, falling asleep with, uh, there were five others, falling asleep in the left uh, side rear seat, left rear seat in the car, the other five in the car as well. And just as the sun was coming up, I uh, felt the car shaking violently and woke up and um, looked around. First thought was that one of my friends was outside just shaking the car, being a wise guy. And in fact, everybody was accounted for in the car and looked out through the uh, rear windshield and saw a white object on the hillside across from us, a ball probably six feet in diameter, lifting off the ground. And as the craft broke the ground and started to go into the sky, the shaking stopped. And it just zipped away. Any sound? Uh, no sound. We were in the car, uh, oh. but watched this thing go. Mm -hmm. um, at age 17, uh, if I'm not boring you guys with these stories, at age no, 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 please. At age 17, um, was out one evening with the family in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, and looked overhead. And I was interested in astronomy at the time. And the one uncle that was with with me uh, and a number of other family members 
looked up and said, wow, look at that thing over there. I wonder what that is. And I was the hotshot astronomer at 17 and said, ah, that's the planet Jupiter. So everybody bought into Jupiter, and, and we continued with our walk. And um, about 45 minutes later, Jupiter started to move across the sky. Why does Jupiter do that? <laughs> so, so you know, I don't know. It certainly, it certainly was an aircraft. Uh, it certainly wasn't a planet. Uh, it certainly wasn't a meteor. Or, um, I don't know. This celestial object, bright object, about the size of what Jupiter looks like, was there stationary for about 45 minutes in the star moving across the sky. I saw had an event on the tw- my, my twenty around my twenty first birthday, um, so so my twenty ninth uh, year I saw a cigar shaped object in the sky. Uh, actually, took that photograph while piloting my airplane. Um, everybody, this is the photograph that's on the cover of this book. No, it's no. not. Okay. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We have Chap Sapolio. He is author of a book called Sworn to Secrecy, 1947 Roswell Incident. This is a fiction book, kind of how things might have gone. And, okay, so where do we see the photo of this particular craft that you saw? Well, I have, I have the photo. You know, it's, it's, it, it's available for, uh, it's been scrutinized. Bruce Maccabee has looked at it. Uh, Bruce doesn't know what it is. I have no idea what it is. Can, can you give us some more details about the incident, Chad? The, the cigar incident. incident. Yeah. yeah. Um, the local newspapers uh, had been carrying for the week, probably every other day for a week, uh, reports of sightings in the area. And given my interest and, and given my access to an aircraft, a friend and I decided to take an airplane up at night and uh, see if we could see anything over the area where people were, were, were witnessing these objects. And we circled the area probably for about a half an hour, 45 minutes, and we were returning to the home field. And all of a sudden, this object, scar-shaped object, um, 
not the typical looking cigar shape, but rather small, more like a um, a, a pen uh, at arm's length. Uh, it just suddenly appeared and was orange. Uh, it was moving very slowly, and we had a camera with us. We photographed the object, and maybe five seconds after the the picture was taken, the object just disappeared, just sort of blinked out. Okay, that's uh, really interesting. So. Was this object dark, matte, or was it reflective of light? Uh, it looked like it was uh, had an internal source. So it was well, self-illuminated. It was dark. Yeah, it wasn't. It was dark. It was certainly uh, probably about ten p.m. at night. So you, this the, the, that you saw this was based on some some internal self-illumination. Yeah, and I don't know if internal illumination is exactly the right word I should yeah, use. Yeah, maybe I, yeah, that was, it, it, it was emitting some sort of light. That's correct, that's correct. Uniform over the whole surface of it? It was, and actually, I, I call it cigar shape, but on both ends, um, there was, it was, uh, it wasn't a uniform, it wasn't uniform on the ends. It almost looked like it had, uh, strange geometry on each end of it. But mm. it wasn't a typical looking cigar shape. Uh, craft like you know you've you've seen in some of the pictures. You say right. strange geometry. What do you mean by that? Um, you know, an irregular shape. It wasn't you know triangular, or there wasn't it wasn't spherical on the ends. It was more of a, a jaggedy kind of a geometry on both ends. About what altitude were you guys at? Thirty-eight hundred, four thousand feet. Relatively low. Okay. Yeah, we were flying VFR. It was visual flight rules, and it was a clear night. So, was this above you at your level or below you? It was um, the way I estimated it. It was probably at about one o'clock from where we were at. So I would say it was okay. probably above us, maybe at uh, five to ten miles. But at arm's length, and that's not obviously the best metric to use, but at arm's length, it was probably about uh, all the size of uh, maybe an inch, an inch and a half long. Okay. This photograph, what detail, level detail does it show? Uh, it shows a luminous cigar-shaped object with two irregular bulbs of light on each end. Would Sir? you be willing to send us a copy of the negative, a copy of the photo for, you know, some of our people to look at? Yeah, I would be happy to do that. I have to dig it up. I've got a, a wealth. I have a lot of things. If you guys have an audience that would be interested, I'd be more than happy to share, share a lot of things with you. You know what? We have a few minutes left. Chet, when you saw this thing blink out... All right. Try to remember, uh, and I have a very specific reason for asking this. When you saw it blink out, was it that it grabbed, did it look like the equivalent of somebody flicking a light switch and it was just gone? Or was it, it as gradual a, it, in some it, way? Yeah, it did as opposed to it burning out. Right. So that so that the, the light source was uh, gradually uh, reducing in, in, in amplitude. It was more like this thing just switched off. Okay. So it didn't just, like, pop away. You saw some an, an envelope of the thing basically, at, let's say, starting at full illumination, and then over some short time period going from full illumination, gradually going off. Yeah, I know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't characterize it that way at all. I would. I would say that rather it didn't zip away. It didn't gradually go out like a, a, a flame. 
it just went from full elimination to nothing. Okay, so it winked out. Yes. Okay. Okay. Now, the reason I asked this, Chet, is that I saw a cigar-shaped craft, not quite like this, in, in, in Caracas, Venezuela, in the mid-'70s, and as our audience well knows, they've, they've heard the episode probably more than once. Um, in my case, three discs came out from inside of this thing, positioned themselves in a triangulation around this craft, and then the whole thing was just just blinked out as if somebody had literally hit the light switch and it was just gone. Um, but this wasn't at night. This was actually in, 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 in what was still substantial daylight. Right. So, yeah, it was a pretty wild, uh, wild experience. Um, before we're, we're finished here, uh, you, you had indicated to us uh, before we started taping that uh, you potentially had seen something in Gulf Breeze. Yes, um, and and you reminded me of it when you talked about uh, the the sighting that you had and how I described this thing disappearing. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, you guys are probably familiar with the um, famous Gulf Breeze daytime sighting of the daytime disc and how the disc is there overhead in a blue sky and then it seems to blink out and mm -hmm. with with further analysis it was work done by dr bruce maccabee um the the craft actually uh speeds away at an incredible rate of acceleration right um but yeah i had two um two experiences in golf breeze I've, i was there twice during the, the flap uh, once for four days and once for a week. And um, I went down with uh, some other investigators from the area and uh, had an opportunity to spend some time with Ed Walters and that whole Skywatch group that Ed used to hang around with and um, actually broke away from the group and, and, and took a couple of, of people that were with me and um, saw late at night, probably about 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, two strange things. And the two sightings um, occurred maybe 20 minutes uh, apart. Uh, the first one was really unusual. It was a um, cross, literally it looked like a cross, a crucifix, uh, in the sky, um, and it was white. And it lasted for only three or four seconds. It just popped into existence it looked like a crucifix a white cross in the sky hmm. and then and then blinked out and the second uh thing that i saw was at daybreak um walking along the the beach uh and was able to photograph this i had a movie camera with me but i saw an object that was a that looked like a tank, literally like a, a, I don't know how to describe it, maybe like a, a retaining tank or a hot water tank, something similar to that, standing vertically on the water. And again, uh, after probably getting close to a minute's worth of footage off of this thing, it just also just disappeared. Now how far away from it was, uh, how, how far away from it? Were you? Well, they, well I guess we're, we can say approximately 20 miles uh, out across the ocean. Uh, I had no back reference to it, so, I, I, you know, it's, it's a tough question to answer. 20 miles but is a guess, pretty decent distance, so how big do you think this thing was? 
Well, I'm not sure that it was 20 miles away. That's what I'm saying. I had really right. no back reference. So, okay. so my guess would be that it might have been five miles away. Okay. Yeah. And uh, on the surface, it was probably at arm's length. And again, not necessarily a good metric, but I'd say uh, at arm's length, probably the size of uh, orange or what cylindrical form, about three inches high, maybe. Okay. And it was sitting right on top of the water? It seemed to be right on the water, yes. Mm. So when it vanished, basically it was just like there and then it was not there. You didn't see like a splash or anything. You didn't see it dive down. It was just there and then it was gone. Yeah, it was just gone. And it actually disappears on the movie, the, the frame. I mean, I, I was filming at the time when it, when it just disappeared. What format uh, camera was it? Uh... It was a, that's a good question. I think it's an 8 millimeter. Right. So it was a film, it was an actual film camera. Yes. Was it black and white or color? Uh, it was filming in color, but what I was looking at was the ocean at, at uh, sunrise, which gave me a lot of blacks, a lot of grays, of course. Mm -hmm. And the object itself was dark gray, close to black. Okay. No, no kind of illumination coming from it or anything. None at all. None at all. all right. We have a couple of minutes left, so without going into detail, was that the last sighting you had? And you've had a few more that maybe we'll have to hear no, about. I just a couple more briefly to tell you about. I have had eleven in total of wow. things that I just could not explain or identify. But the last um, one that, that might be appropriate was in '99, and it was in Roswell. And uh, it was at my home, and where I was staying, I could see the end of the runway uh, at, at the airfield, Roswell Airfield. And at the time, the B-1 bombers were training there, and they were, it was quite a, uh, a, a spectacle. They, they would bring the B-1s in, and they'd run the pattern, and then they'd actually shoot touch-and-goes there at the Roswell Airfield. As you guys know, they've got a tremendously huge airfield there and huge runways, mm -hmm. even by today's standards. And watch these, these planes do this for probably 45 minutes, and it was close to, to dusk. And then it, there was, it was sunset, and we had um, some burgers going on a grill, and we had something to eat, and the sun had gone down. And I was lying on a lounge and looking up at the skies. The skies in Roswell are beautiful. Um, and at any rate, suddenly, coming from the west, almost due west, a V formation of disks, small disks, nothing, nothing, you know, no, nothing huge, more like lights. For some reason, they impressed me as being small little disks. Okay, we don't have much time left. How long did the sighting occur? Was it just the lights, or did they do some kind of strange maneuvers, or what? No, there's a strange maneuver that's interesting, and I'll make it brief. There were four on one side, a V formation, three on the other. And the number two on the, the side with four, the number two changed positions and went to the fourth slot as the V flew towards me. Whoa. And it flew overhead and, 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 and was gone. So it was strange maneuvers in the sky. I'll tell you what. 
We appreciate hearing about all this. Chet Sapolio, he's author of a book called Sworn to Secrecy, the 1947 Roswell Incident. You can get a copy in Amazon Books, by the way, if you're interested more in a fictionalized account of what might have happened. Chet, thanks for joining us this week on the PowerCast. Gentlemen, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Chet. Thank you. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.